0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be here. First of all, I want to thank the Walter Cap Center for the invitation. I want to thank the Hamdanis for their generous support for the World Harmony uh, Lecture. Um, That's a standard that one often uses when you thank people, but I have come in conversation this afternoon to learn much more about the World Harmony um, project, and I I encourage you to look look it up on the the Internet. Um, If we look at where we are today, and as I thought about what would I talk about, um, I just looked at the primary elections, um, I looked at um, the uh, attacks in Paris and San Bernardino. I looked at the um, reactions to that, the fact that Islamophobia um, is at its highest in, um, in 2015. Um, I looked at, one uh, of the faculty here sent me, and I uh, ask you to look at the piece, it's kind of interesting if you want to laugh, uh, in the Washington Post, an editorial Uh, That reminds us that last year, and this is only the first part of the story, uh, that last year um, in a a poll, 54% of Republicans said that deep down they thought President Obama was a Muslim. Well, he's been topped by the former police chief in Dubai, who announced today that he's not only a Muslim, he's convinced of it, he's a Shiite Muslim. Remember how the Gulfies feel about Iran. And that, in fact, the reason he's elected president was because Israel got him elected, which is going to be news to Mr. Netanyahu, given Obama's relationship with Netanyahu, and that he said he was sure that uh, Obama, shortly after leaving office, of course, would go to Iran and visit all the Shiite shrines. So... um, What we have is an example of, if you add that again to Mr. Trump and to Mr. Carson, among others, we have a good example of why we need world harmony, but why the world, from my point of view, as compared to when I got into the field, is dangerously in need of God intervening in history because short of that, I wouldn't count on our politicians um, or a lot of global leaders. Let me begin by trying to put what I'm going to say in some kind of context. There are roughly 2.3 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, 1.5 billion Hindus, 500 million Buddhists, 14 million Jews, maybe between 14 and 18. All of these statistics, by the way, obviously are rough, but you can check them on the internet, and about 23 million Sikhs. So when we talk about world religions, I've included Sikhs here because if you look at the number of Sikhs, I think they also need to be included. But if I refer to world religions, That's what I mean in terms of the constellation of religions. Islam is the second largest and the fastest growing of the world's religions, uh, both uh, globally uh, but also in America, and it's the second or third largest religion in the U.S. and Europe. But how how about America's encounter with Islam? And I think this is important because... One of the things that I often say is that I have the best job in the world. I've been doing what I do for 40 years, and the only difference now as compared to 40 years ago is that I actually get paid and get to travel around the country and do consulting as opposed to when I finished my degree and there were no jobs in the field. So I was kind of a retreaded Catholic theologian at Vatican II who by complete accident took a course in Islam when he was getting his doctorate, finished a degree when all of my Catholic theologian friends said, safe job, Catholic school, Catholic theology. Study abracadabra, you're not going to get a job. That situation did not change until the Iranian revolution, and I'll come back to that in a second, because that became the lens through which Americans encountered Islam. Islam was invisible in the 60s and 70s, up until the Iranian Revolution, invisible in this country. Muslims were here, but no one was really aware. Islamic mosques and centers were not visible at all. The oldest mosque is in Iowa, the second oldest is in Quincy, Mass. It's called a Boston uh, Mosque, but it was in Quincy, Massachusetts. What was the landscape like at that time? Well a famous book was written at that time that discovered that there were Catholics in America and so in talking about American religion it was now Protestants, Catholics and Jews there was no talk of Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims the attitude towards religion was that religion was something of the past as one social scientist said Muslims had a choice between Mecca and mechanization Um, diplomats who were going to serve in the Muslim world Experts who were going to, uh, who were being trained, none of them were paying attention to the contemporary role and vibrancy of religion. Religion was seen as something of the past. To the extent that it existed, it was part of tradition, and in fact, that was a backward force, so why would you study it? The social sciences didn't deal with it, and the national relations didn't touch it. Professional organizations like the Middle East Studies Association, uh, even up until the time that I almost became president, not almost, I did become president, but almost at the time that I became president, um, didn't even cover Islam. The American Academy of Religion had no coverage of Islam. The American Academy of Religion, the largest professional organization of, of religion uh, experts. So that was, that was where we were there. Now, one other comment is that when I talk about religion, I distinguish religion in two ways. Religion has a transcendent side and it has a dark side, all religions in terms of their history, okay? The transcendent side is obviously a belief in a transcendent reality, but also the notion that that transcendent reality and following or or connecting with that transcendent reality enables us to transcend ourselves to be better people. On the other hand, religion has had a dark side, both in terms of tensions and conflicts between religions, but also within religions. One doesn't have to look at the history of Islam. One can look at the history of Christianity, of Protestants and Catholics, for example, historically. Okay, so the Iranian Revolution. Why was it so significant? Against that background, the idea that there would be a revolution in Iran that the Shah of Iran, who had the second largest military in the Middle East after Israel, had oil wealth, could speak English and with his wife show up on the Today Show, therefore obviously was civilized, Uh, had a modernization program, could be overthrown by an opposition that did not fire a bullet, and be overthrown if you could have pictured the Shah of Iran and then put a picture of Khomeini next to him by a man who looked old, a man who most people had never seen a Shia Ayatollah, and a man who'd been out of the country for more than 20 years and living in a suburb of Paris. The idea that that could occur was inconceivable. And so the American encounter with Islam was in terms of hostage taking and then fear of the export. The best way to see where we were was Tom Brokaw, who used to do the Today Show, interrupted when they were getting reports uh, from within the compound about the hostages, uh, interrupted his, his broadcast for a second and said, let me tell you about the religion of Islam. It's the second largest of the world's religions It uh, has a revealed book called the Quran and a prophet named Muhammad, full stop. Note what he felt he needed to tell the American people. Any American would have felt that if they went any place in the world, and certainly uh, we're talking about an educated audience, that somebody would have heard the word Jesus, Moses, and Bible. But here he was talking to an American audience and having to make that identification. Against that background, imagine what it was like then for people... To see people shouting death to America. To see hostage taking. And the presumption that that must be what the religion of Islam is about. And that must be what all Muslims are about. In the 1990s, you then had a series of of, uh, articles appearing in Europe and America. Where suddenly, Islam was seen as a triple threat. Why? Well, you had the Iranian revolution. You then had instances of instability uh, there were uh, uh, uprisings in the Gulf, and you had authors like Bernard Lewis, but also a Sam Huntington, talking about Islam as a political and civilizational threat, and Pap Buchanan saying it was a demographic threat. Why, as Pap Buchanan said, a graduate of Georgetown, I must note, uh, although I try to block that out, um, his sister actually was one of my first students, and. I couldn't figure out why David Eisenhower was sending me cards all the time, welcoming me to the Young Republicans, given the fact that I thought my students had some sense of where I came from politically, and then I realized who Babe Buchanan was and where we were on that. But Pat Buchanan wrote a piece saying, in effect, that while the U.S. was being humiliated overseas in places like Europe, in Turkey, for example, he said, which had gone secular, and as only a Catholic of his generation could say, Um, In Europe Where condom is king A great quotable that one will remember um, Where condom is king Turkish doctors Are laboring far into the night Limiting children because if you will, native-born Germans are getting abortions and the Turkish doctor, who may be a nice guy, is having a big family of six kids. And if this keeps up, we've got a demographic threat. Well, that notion of demographic threat has has continued, even though statistics show that it's an absurd kind of statement. But what then emerged was, increasingly, and it was articulated by Huntington, the notion of a clash of civilizations. that, That that was happening, that it was impending. Now, what I want to speak about today is the religion of Islam and particularly the Islam and religious pluralism in America. We can talk globally in the you know, in, in question and answer, but I want to look at it in terms of America. What is Islam? What do mainstream Muslims believe? Not just what do people in ISIS or al-Qaeda say, but what are some of the beliefs that many mainstream Muslims have, but particularly how do we see the religion playing out today in people's lives? If you want to know and get a sense of a religion, for most of us in a practical, we we make a judgment when we meet somebody and we generalize about their ethnic background or about their faith by what they seem to be like. We don't immediately feel that, whoa, we're meeting our friend for the first time and we have to go read their scriptures. You know, we sort of deal with who are they, how do they live their lives, how do they talk about their faith, and then if we get interested, we might go back and take a look. Islam is a spiritual path, as are all religions, it provides meaning and purpose for a Muslim's life. It answers the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Why should I be good? Why does it matter? Among the questions. The God of Islam is described as and referred to in the phrase Rahim in the name of God, the merciful and compassionate. Every verse of the Quran begins with that phrase a traditional pious Muslim will begin a speech, a letter, starting a meal, driving a car, saying, in the name of God, the merciful and compassionate. Um, Excuse me, I just have to drink some water. I'm a little lightheaded at the moment. Um, Okay, Um, although 65% of Americans acknowledge the importance of religion, Muslim Americans, some 80%, acknowledge the importance of their faith. What does faith mean to Muslims today? Overwhelming numbers of Muslims, if you look at Gallup, Pew polls, globally, insist that Islam is a key source of guidance, consolation, a marker of their community. Majorities in most Muslim countries see Islam as integral to their daily lives and want it to be integral to their daily lives and as an aspect that is essential, that one cannot actually move on without. But what is the relationship of Muslims to Jews and Christians? Part of the reason why I began to study Islam or became fascinated when I first took a course was that in the old days, Judaism and Christianity were put here and Islam was put with Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, all the other isms. And suddenly I discovered when I studied Islam that here you had a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. In other words, you had a faith that saw itself as not rooted in Hinduism and Buddhism, historically, theologically, etc., but in fact in Judaism and in Christianity. For Muslims, they are part of the children of Abraham. They are part of the family of Abraham, historically and theologically. Therefore, for Muslims, as for Jews and Christians, they see God as the creator, sustainer, and judge of the universe. Muslims are raised from a very early age to associate these notions of compassion and mercy with their God and with their faith. Muslims view creation as God's creation, but God's creation given to humankind as a trust. And it is it is Human beings that represent God and are to see and create a world in which there is justice and peace. The Quran has many passages that make uh, refer to that. And so the Quran becomes the cornerstone, the revelation of God. The prophet is seen as the ideal exemplar, the model, the model to be followed. He is, in the words of some, the living Quran. But what about this Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition? Muslims don't see Islam as a new religion. We see Islam as a new religion, whoever we are, okay? that's just rhetorical. Um, They see Islam and the Quran as, in fact, part of a continuing flow of God's revelation to humankind, first made to Moses in the Torah and to Jesus in the Gospels. As the Quran says, we sent Jesus, the son of Mary, confirming the Torah that had come before him. We sent him the Gospel, in which his guidance and light And confirmation of the Torah A guidance and an admonition To those who fear God However, Muslims believe That God sent down his revelation One final time to Muhammad To correct errors that occurred Within, for example, within the Gospels In other words, the idea that Jesus the Prophet Becomes Jesus the Son of God And the notion of the Trinity that develops, etc Now, how is that to be done? Well, Anyone who uh, becomes a follower of a faith, and certainly this would be true in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, one begins to say then, what do I need to do? How should I follow that God who is my creator, my sustainer, and my judge? And Islam, like Judaism, actually then develops the law as providing a guidepost. In Christianity, it tends to be doctrine or dogma. In Judaism and Islam, it is law. And so... Law gets developed as a way to lay out a moral compass or, if you will, a blueprint, an ideal blueprint on what one should be. But let me make a distinction here that is debated among Muslim scholars and non-Muslim scholars. I don't think there is any debate myself. And that is that we often conflate the two terms, and indeed Muslims do often, Sharia and Islamic law. Sharia refers to the divine principles and values that are to be found in the Quran and the example of the prophet. Islamic law is a human construct created by people in light of sacred scripture, but then extended as law by human beings in the early century. And so out of that develops the corpus of Islamic law. Therefore, for example, today, in terms of, if you will, uh, reform, the challenge of Muslims, the debate among Muslims, is what in the law comes directly from God and is unchangeable, and what in the law is historically and socially conditioned and in new historical and social conditions can be reformed, but also what can be added in light of new issues or new problems. This is sadly lost on Rick Santorum, uh, Michelle Bachman and Crowd, which is why I'm finishing a book called What Everyone Needs to Know About Sharia to be published by Oxford. Unfortunately, it won't be published this year, so I can't tell you it's the ideal Hanukkah, Christmas, or Eid gift, but if you go to Amazon, you'll find a lot of other my books that you can get for the holidays. Okay, I had to do that little plug. Somebody's got to pay for the house. All right, now, um, let me then move to and emphasize the importance of this moral compass for Muslims. At the heart of the moral compass are what we call the five pillars of Islam, which I'll do very briefly, but I know there are some students here um, and who may not have a background. By the way, I want to apologize to the undergraduates who I was supposed to meet for lunch, but uh, I spent most of the day in bed, unfortunately, um, and I just couldn't meet with you. But I know some of you are here. Those of who aren't are certainly going to suffer in hell, but that's another question. Uh, oh, I forgot we're being... Oh, I'm being recorded. Oh, jeez. All right, okay. We'll edit that one out. All right. Now, um, basically, when we do polls, we discover that majorities of Muslims, however different, want to see Islamic values and principles in their lives and in their society. Now, what they mean by that can really vary. It shouldn't surprise us that majorities want it because if you look at the U.S. in a major poll done by Gallup, a majority of conservative Christians, Protestant and Roman Catholic or close to a majority, want the Bible as a source of legislation. Actually, it is a majority. 44% say the Bible should be a source of American law. 9% say it should be the only source of American law. Depending on where you stand, that may be enlightening, or perhaps perplexing, or maybe even a little frightening, depending on how you see it. Okay. What does the Quran have to say about diversity and about pluralism? What does it have to say about the people of the book, Jews and Christians? A concept that then has been extended uh, to people of other faiths. The Quran affirms that God's decision to create not just a single nation or tribe, but a world of different nations, ethnicities, tribes, and languages. God says, O humankind, we have created you male and female and made you nations and tribes so that you might come to know one another. It recognizes the human communities, religious diversity, and support for religious pluralism with texts like to everyone we have appointed a way and a course to follow. To everyone we have appointed a way and a course to follow. Or again, for each there is a direction toward which he turns. Vi therefore with one another in the performance of good works. Wherever you may be, God shall bring you all together on the day of judgment. Surely God has the power over all things. Jews and Christians are referred to as people of the book and something that Mr. Baghdadi and bin Laden tended to miss and have missed is the Quran in chapter 2 verse 256 says there is no compulsion in Islam. There is to be no compulsion in Islam. But who are these Muslims in terms of our fellow citizens? Muslims today are like other groups that came in the past, come, are on the periphery of society, and then more and more, over a number of decades, become more integrated. Today, Muslims are integrated into American society educationally, economically, socially, and increasingly politically. What does that mean? Education is a priority. What does that mean? Muslims are second to American Jews in terms of religious communities, in in terms of uh, most educated community, second to American Jews. 40% of Muslims have college degrees of American Muslims versus 29% of Americans overall. Muslim women are statistically as educated as Muslim men and brighter, but that's another story. (laughs) Socioeconomically, they span the, the spectrum. Professionals, lawyers, doctors, actually in correct order for most of my Muslim friends, doctors, lawyers, engineers, okay? Then maybe corporate, um, but it goes right down to 24% of of American Muslims are uh, people who started their own companies, uh, to people who drive private limos, who drive taxi cabs. So they span the economic uh, uh, spectrum. 70% have a job versus 64% of Americans overall. Among those who are non-working, 31% are full-time students versus 10% of our general population. High number of youth, high emphasis on education and making it in America. How about civic engagement? Muslims are in Congress, they are mayors, they increasingly run for office in the military, police, firemen, some were first responders, some died at 9-11, they run NGOs, engage in disaster relief, more than 100 free clinics across the country, um, uh, open to people of all faiths, Uh, back to school projects uh, started last year uh, in Texas, open to people of all faiths, very much involved increasingly in the environmental uh, uh, movement. How about religion? Now here's where American Muslims stand out compared to many in Muslim countries and predominantly Muslim countries because the American Muslim community has had to deal in a very significant way with religious pluralism and particularly as a religious minority. 77% of Muslims say that they worship the same God as Christians and Jews. 84% said Muslims should strongly emphasize shared values with Christians and Jews. And how about the acid test of pluralism? what a Muslim scholar, Abdulaziz Satchadina, calls the acid test of pluralism. While a minority, 33%, said my religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life, a majority, 56%, believed many religions can lead to eternal life. Muslims in many ways reflect where Christians were coming from just a short time ago, historically. Not only between Christians and Muslims, but when I grew up, Catholic vis-a-vis Protestants. We knew where we were going, and we knew where they were going. When I wanted to join the Boy Scouts, the Boy Scout master was an uh, Italian-American and Catholic. It didn't matter. The real issue was we were meeting in a Methodist church. And, And what would that mean? Of course, we'd be with Methodists, who would also be in the troop. And that was at a time when Catholics, if they wanted to go to a Protestant wedding, had to get permission to go to that. So, you know, we forget that it wasn't... Sometimes we like to compare our faith to somebody else's faith and just act like, oh, well that was centuries ago. Uh, one of the things you want to think about when you do faith, do ideal to ideal and reality to reality. We ought to do that with our ethnic groups too. We often compare our ideal to somebody else's reality. If it is our reality, we say, oh no, that's not really what our faith about is about. They're distorted people. But when we look at somebody else's faith, we don't say, wait a minute, maybe they're distorting things. Okay, but what about today? Fear of Islam has become normalized in popular culture. Fear of Islam has become normalized in popular culture. And there are a variety of reasons for it. Obviously, the fear comes from extremists. But when we frame it, do we frame it in terms of the minority and what they do as opposed to the entire faith? When... Christian and Jewish radical fundamentalists commit acts of violence, we immediately say, they're extremists, or they're ultranationalist. When Muslims commit that, we often imply a collective guilt, that is, as if they represent all Muslims. Remember that the Center for counterterrorism at West Point says that the victims of terrorism, 87 to 92 percent globally of the victims of Uh, Islamic extremism or Muslim extremism Are Muslims themselves So I think that that's important And and also, by the way, in 9-11 Muslims were killed in the towers I happened to be at a very sad uh, funeral For a young husband and wife Both were killed uh, in in the towers at that time Okay So what what are the players here? We've got domestic and international terrorist groups We've got media We've got American elections as major catalyst, and I'm going to touch on that very briefly. Let's look at the media. A major study was done, 975,000 pieces of media, 975,000 pieces of European and American media between 2001 and 2011. 2001, when we look at all the media coverage and say, what coverage is there of Islam and Muslims, it's 2% extremism, 0.1% mainstream context, what are most Muslims like? 2011, the 2% jumps to 28%, a lot of attacks. How about mainstream? Remains at 0.1%. Enormous disparity, okay? The latest study, and by the way, you can go up on the internet and find this. It's uh, done by a group called Media Tenor, T-E-N-O-R. The latest study, which came out last week, basically looks and says that, in fact, the situation in 2015, witnessed in all time the highest uh, problematic rate, the highest negativity. 80% of media coverage on Islam, on Islam, is negative. 80%. The majority of coverage has been on ISIS. Why? If it bleeds, it leads. That's what sells newspapers. You know, you look at the media. I'm going to go a little bit over time. I was trained by, actually, Castro and Gaddafi in terms of speaking. (laughs) So, actually, um, this is is true. You think I'm making this up. The university is providing a free breakfast, which will be served towards the end of my lecture. (laughs) And then take me to the plane. Okay. But when we look at normal coverage, mainstream coverage of Muslims, 50% is negative. And when you look at when they feature individual Muslims in the world, the main people covered are warlords and jihadists. Not Nobel laureates, not prominent professors, not corporate leaders, not senior members of the National Institute of Health, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we are really moving towards. Images of Islam and Muslims tend to be in terms of three things, war and conflict, terrorism, and violent jihad. Even though, as deadly as that is, it represents a fraction of a fraction, of the world's Muslims. And even if you add up most of the people who've been killed by terrorist actions, it pales in terms of the levels of violence that exist in America today. And I won't get to it in my talk today, but I can tell you this, which you don't see in the media. The FBI report this year on the main terrorist threat in America, and they base it on the site, the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center, which said this two years ago, but reaffirmed the magnitude this year. The number one terrorist threat in America are white anti-government groups and militias, a number of which are Christian identity informed. Okay, you don't see anything about that. And if you look at the number of attacks that are committed and the number of people killed, they are. And go to the websites on this; they are incredible. If we had time, I have the stats here, but I won't get into that. What about American attitudes towards Islam and Muslims? Ask what they admire about Muslims, 55% say nothing, I don't know. A majority still say they don't know a Muslim, which is pretty tricky. 33% believe that Muslim Americans are more sympathetic to terrorists. Today, 27% of Americans have a favorable opinion of Islam, down from 35% in 2010. Why is that? It's not only affected by the terrorist attacks, the real... Thing that gooses up the numbers, which is amazing when we actually looked at it, is American elections. The presidential elections and the presidential primaries, 2008, 2012, and the current primaries. The numbers go up considerably during elections. Why not? Think about the statements that were made when, when President Obama was running. Think about what many of the candidates were saying in the past. Think about some of the candidates today. Trump, Carson, Rick Santorum. The kinds of statements. Mr. Trump basically says we should stop all Muslims coming in temporarily. Mr. Trump says that after 9-11, Palestinians in New Jersey were dancing in the streets, something that has been proven time and again to have never occurred, but no one talks about it. He talks about the fact that maybe we should shut down mosques. Mr. Carson says... A Muslim cannot be president. When it's pointed out to him, that would be against the Constitution. He refuses to change his mind. And in both their cases, the day after they say what they say, their numbers go up and their fundraising goes up. So we've got a problem there. Now, this problem is generated very much by social media, and that's what I want to kind of uh, uh, pull together for you uh, just very quickly. Social media is the main arbiter of popular culture today, not mass media. It used to be mass media drove social media. Now it's the reverse. Um, I'm not going to get into the details, but I'll just be very brief. I spoke in Dallas. Pamela Geller, who's r- behind a good deal of the, uh, the Falderal over the mosque at Ground Zero, uh, who also has been involved in all kinds of crusades, as it were, with regard to uh, Muslims, uh, noticed that two of the five speakers that were going to speak at a Muslim community fundraiser in a suburb of Dallas uh, were people she didn't like. She mobilized with her Twitter her people across the country and called upon them to come to this uh, area in Dallas. We then had police, SWAT teams, helicopter, and FBI at that event. Pamela Geller did not get her pound of flesh she had 350 people showed up there were some altercation so what did she do? she went back to the same place months later and then had the event of the cartoon of the prophet which then did draw two terrorists who came from Arizona and committed a crime but Geller's activities are what then got it onto the O'Reilly show it used to be just the opposite When Ed O'Reilly would do something, it would then go to the Internet. Now, why do I say that? When we look at studies that have been done based on IRS returns, please note this, based on IRS returns, which are public, we find that the Center for American Progress did a study that over a 10-year period, seven major philanthropies, the money that they gave, whether they knew where this was going or not, okay seven major philanthropies gave $42.5 million dollars to people who are known Islamophobes and have Islamophobic websites, the kind of people that Andre Breivik, the Norwegian terrorist, cited in his book as you know people that he admired, ideas that he liked. Another study showed that in a three-year period, $112 million in a three-year period went to similar organizations. So you've got this well-funded group It's a cottage industry. Some of them have titles like Jihad Watch, but others have titles like you'd wanna go look at, Pajama Media, American Thinker, Family Security, who isn't for family security, okay? So you have this enormous influence and then the impact that occurs from that. And I think that that's what we have to become more and more aware of. The elections, you already know, So what can I say about where do we go from here? Where we go from here is what can we do about this? America in the 21st century is extraordinarily multi-ethnic and multi-faith. And we're growing. Wherever you go now, you see Hindu temples, Buddhist temples. I gave a talk in Mississippi. You can tell I'm from New York in my attitude. I go to the University of Mississippi. I go and talk at a mosque as well. And then I come back and another mosque invites me. And I thought there were two mosques in Mississippi. You know, I mean, it's you know. I mean, wherever you go, there are mosques, there are Islamic centers, there are Hindu temples. You know, uh, in the middle of uh, of anywhere, that's the society we're in. Diversity is a plus; it's not necessarily a danger. Multi faith relations based on mutual understanding and respect, a religious pluralism that acknowledges religious diversity, though not necessarily an agreement on doctrine, is critical in our times. Recognizing our shared beliefs and values as well as acknowledging our differences is also an important part of what it means to be American. It plugs right into our notion of citizenship and civil liberties. Without that, it is threatened. There's a document done, a common word between us and you. What's the basis? A common word done by more than 300 uh, major Muslim thinkers and then distributed to the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, many of whom the top re- Christian religious leader signed off on. It basically says, we have our differences historically and today, but we live in a global world and we, sh- we do share things in common. It's not just security and stability, but faith, love of God and love of neighbor. These are two commandments that all three accept. And if you go to their website, you'll see they lay it out from scripture but providing a basis for saying in this world, despite our differences, we have to realize we have the shared principles and values and emphasize that. People of faith and people of no faith are challenged to work together to build a society based upon mutual understanding and respect, to embrace a healthy pluralism that recognizes our diversity and our differences, but also our shared values. And why? What's the basis for that? It's the the no-brainer. It's the universal values that we all subscribe to. All people will accept the fact that murder is wrong, that human rights are important, that gender relations are important, that civil liberties are important for everyone. If we forget that, If we are driven by the extremists, who are a fraction of a fraction of 1%, if we are driven by that fear, then we become subject to what neuroscience increasingly tells us, that if you really raise people's level of fear, they will retreat to authoritarian approaches, authoritarian governance. If you're afraid enough, you'll be convinced. That's what authoritarian regimes do in the Middle East. They scare you with their security forces, or they also develop other fears within the society so that you basically, the only way you're going to feel secure is not to speak out and to really buy into whoever they choose to demonize. And so you have a coup in Egypt. Thousands are massacred. And that word is applied by objective observers, major human rights organizations. You have a coup and a level of violence greater than committed by any contemporary Egyptian ruler, and that takes a hell of a lot, and violations of human rights, and the US and the EU, after a while, look the other way. So that is our challenge. We have the ability to change things. And I'll end with this. People always ask me, well, what does that mean? You know, they'll say, well, you know, I'm not uh, so-and-so, and I'm not you, and I'm not... Every one of us is a citizen. Every one of us is a neighbor. Every one of us has an opportunity to to see or engage with people of, as we have, with people of other ethnicities and faiths in the past. Every one of us has an obligation to know what others are about or what they are like. Part of the good news is, but for some of us here, some of you look older than I do, that's pretty difficult, Um, but in any case, part of the good news is that when we look at polls, the younger generation is far less biased. Why? That's a no-brainer. Unless you have a lot of wealth and send your kid to a racist private school, we've become so multicultural that in most parts of the country, when your kid goes off to school, whether it's grammar school, high school, or college or university, they're going to interact with a lot of folks. The difficulty is with, for many of us who are of an older generation and were raised in, for example, a totally white society or a totally... Christian community in our early years, et cetera. So the times are changing, but they're not changing fast enough. All you have to do is look at the headlines, domestically and globally, to realize that they're not changing you know, fast enough, or watch the presidential debates that are, are taking place. Thank you very much. Thank you,
1: Thank you very much, uh, Professor Esposito. We will now have um, three panelists, first panelist, which would be Imam
2: Yarma Niazi. I want to first thank uh, Professor Esposito who gave a very beautiful talk. Um, My question would be, As a Muslim and as a leader of our community, uh, we're always, you know, challenged with what is going on in a way that I don't think a lot of people understand. On the one hand, we got extremists that are constantly on TV representing Muslims and how people perceive it, as you mentioned. And on the other hand, we have a lack of uh, ability to portray what true Islam is uh, around the country. And I'm not sure currently in the, in the country how, how many professors we have who are as knowledgeable as yourself and as fair as yourself. What recommendation do you have in how Mus- what Muslims need to do, uh, what we have done, perhaps things you've uh, analyzed that we have made perhaps mistakes on? What's your general advice on uh, the Muslims as we look into the future?
0: I, I think that um, – can you hear me okay? with uh, This mic? Okay. I, I think that it's important to realize just how far the communities come, okay? Um, when I got into the field, uh, you know, 40 years ago, um, uh, for example, if, if you had a gathering, it would be in a small little Islamic center – you know, now you've got a community that is very much part of the system, very well placed in society. It's in sharp contrast to Europe. Europe, the majority of Muslims who went to Europe went there as laborers. They came from rural areas. They didn't expect to stay. And those that invited them in didn't expect them to stay. In Germany, you, you could be second generation and still not be a German citizen. Here, it's very high level of education, Um, certainly with the immigrant Muslims and and the African-American communities come a long way. Um, I think post 9-11 was an important time. I think that one of the strikes that Muslims have against them is the fact that despite all of the statements, and you can go on the Internet and find this, but you won't find it in your major media, from right after 9 11, you had Muslims denouncing this, both in the United States, that kind of terrorism. And they continue when they're attacks, denouncing it all the time. Major media just does not cover it. It just does not cover it. And that includes, at times, commentators with major media, where, in fact, right in the newspaper, there was a full-page ad. OK um, Muslims have, many of them, begun to really reach out. Uh, and that's gone on. A lot of opening with community centers, um, and I think that needs to continue. I think that also um, the extent to which I've been really happy about this, uh, Muslims are now moving the way in which many of us who were ethnic Catholics uh, or even Jews, when they first came, you know, at first you come, you stay in your community, you try to go to your schools, you you know, uh, etc., uh, and you have your own social services and welfare. But now when many of the NGOs are reaching out to that broader community i think all of those things are ways of reminding so many americans who still say they don't know a muslim who you are where you are and where you are in the society you know what i mean that that in fact you are the neighbor you are that fellow professional i remember my wife about 10 years ago had a bad accident Uh, We lived across from Georgetown uh, Hospital at the time. I rush into the hospital. The first guy that comes in is in his 40s. He's an Iranian. The second person that comes in is a Saudi who's a resident. Well, that's a different story. He's a resident. I don't quite, you know, it's his first year. But, I mean, the first two or three physicians that came in, that would have been unheard of in the past. So I think it's really important that that, uh, Muslims be out front. But I think also that it's important, and I know this is a debate among Muslims, Muslims should not give in to this idea that they have a collective guilt. You know, they shouldn't allow people to guilt them. I mean, you know, I was raised at a time when the mafia was thriving. And at a time when you looked at TV, the gangsters were mafia. And if they weren't identified as mafia, they sure as hell looked like me. You know, <laughs> the nose, the complexion, etc. Okay. And the reality of it was, a lot of people would talk to me as if I had connections. Okay. Even today, I was in a meeting in the Middle East with top diplomats And they were talking about getting something done. And I kiddingly said, but with a straight face, if we can't get that done, I'll send my cousin Guido. (laughs) I am not kidding. Half of them looked serious, you know. And my line now is, of course, you know, uh, the Pope excommunicated the mafia. So for cousin Guido, why break your legs? I can kill you. It's a mortal sin. They're both mortal sins. But I mean, I think that that is something the Muslims have to be sensitive about. Otherwise, you allow the Islamophobes in our society, to, um, to make you feel less power, empowered than you are. Your educational level, your economic level, and your rights as citizens demand that you act otherwise. Thank
1: you. Uh, now we'll have our second panelist, uh, uh, Professor uh, Kathleen Moore.
3: Brilliant. I think we uh, got a taste of, you know, increasingly we tend to look to Georgetown and specifically to the Prince El Waleed Center of, uh, for, Christian, for Muslim Christian Understanding to help us understand, you know, the relationship of the West with the Muslim world. And I think we got a little bit of a, an insight tonight about why that is so. So thank you very much for that brilliant talk. Um, I want to build on what you were talking about You said that each of us have within ourselves the capacity for transformation, and we need to look inward for that. Rather than looking to the Muslim community to make the change, I think we each individually need to look within, see what we need to change to resolve this problem. So with that in mind, you know, you talked about, uh, I want you to say something about Georgetown's role in shepherding the common word project. And these are theologians and scholars who are talking about Um, theological um, um, differences and theological similarity. How does that translate into how people live their everyday lives and find some guidance from their scripture to make that transformation that you're talking
0: about? Well, I I, I think a a couple of things. I I would encourage uh, some of you to look at our website for the center, but if you're interested in the the, the question of what I was discussing tonight, uh, anti-Muslim bias, or what we call Islamophobia, um, if you go to bridge.georgetown.edu bridge.georgetown.edu you'll find, for example, all kinds of data, not just on, on, uh, on um, uh, bias, but you'll find data if you want to know about Muslims in America, Muslims in the world, all kinds of information about Muslims and about Muslim-Christian relations, about issues with regard to Sharia, etc. Um, You know, what's interesting about common word, just watch this now, and please just be really honest about this. Would you raise your hand if you know anything about a common word? Okay. We have one, one, one and a half. (laughs) Um, I don't know whether somebody's doing their hair or whatever. All right. How many of you know about the Amman, A-M-M-A-N, as in Jordan, Amman message? Probably one, all the way in the back. Two, okay. All right, think about that. There's your indictment of the media. The Amman message was done quite a few years ago where major Muslim leaders not only denounced terrorism, but denounced it in a way to delegitimate Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden. Okay? How many of you know about Letter to Baghdadi? Letter to Baghdadi. Letter to Baghdadi was done by major American Muslims and some others, addressing Baghdadi point for point and taking him on in terms of his understanding and interpretation of Islam. We don't. We're not aware of that. I think that part of what we need to do to embody the spirit of a common word is just take the heart of it. If we're believers or if we are not believers, we all certainly accept the idea that we ought to be concerned about our neighbor, that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us, let alone for believers also love of God. Just embodying that in one's life so that practically when you... When you hear or see something, you question it a second or third time. When Sean Hannity does a rant, you know, even though he can be entertaining, but when he does a rant about that, you at least double check on what's the accuracy of this and what are the implications. Because the problem is there are enormous implications. If you look at the latest report from the FBI on hate crimes, Uh, towards Arabs and Muslims and and, and new studies too. In the last year, they've gone up considerably. It also affects the civil liberties of folks. Uh, This is something that is surprising uh, to some people. There have been more cases and indeed frivolous cases. I'm involved in civil liberties cases uh, and work with some of the top lawyers during the Obama administration than under George W. Bush. Most of us don't have any sense of that. And what does it mean to say it's a frivolous case? It's a matter of looking at the number of cases and saying how many people are found guilty. And then it's a matter of looking at some cases and saying, and with some of those that were found guilty and and put away, you know, is it because of the climate today? You know, and is there that that kind of momentum? I've heard people say things like, I, I once gave a talk to corporate people, and this is nothing against corporate people, Those of you who are, write a check for my center. Um, But a guy in the audience blurted out and said, Well, let's do what we did to the Japanese. So I said, Excuse me? He said it worked. You know? So, I mean, you know, I mean, we, we do it another way. Next time you see something in the media or hear somebody say something or read an article, take out the word Islam and Muslim and put in Jew, Italian American, African American, and see if. A mainstream editor would put some of that stuff in. When you've got major media people saying the equivalent of kill them all, convert them or kill them, drive them out, when you've got those kinds of statements, which you can make because of the way we interpret freedom of speech here, you've got a problem. When somebody writes to me and says, um, they they should come into your office, bitch slap you until your body's bloody, drag you out by your hair and that's not even good enough for you, And nothing can be done about that because he or she didn't say they were going to do it. When you've got that level of hate speech and you see that on the internet, you know, um, I mean, it's astonishing the things that people say. And I think we, we need to be more aware. Why am I saying this? Because in the old days, I don't know about many of you, but in the old days, people just took voting, you know, and you voted straight party or you sort of didn't vote or whatever. We now determine who's in there, and they determine whether we go to war. They determine whether people hate us. And without the draft, we're willing to go to war a hell of a lot more. Three-quarters of the Congress would not be so quick to want to talk about intervening, you know, if it weren't their kids. So we we have a way to really change this world in which we're living, you know. Uh, We may be upset with America, but do we really need to listen to some of the really racist stuff that's being put out there by some of the candidates? I don't think so.
1: Finally, we'll have the Reverend Steve Jacobson, who is the co-director of La Casa de Maria Retreat Center in Montecito. Thank you. Um, Wonderful to have you here. I've read your books and my interfaith work and always been inspired. For 16 years in town here, I was a pastor And uh, did interfaith work. Um, and then at one point I realized, you know, we're, we're having these polite meetings. We get together for things. We chit-chat. We never get to know people deeply. So I had a grant, a project called Sons and Daughters of Abraham, a group of people from the synagogue, a group of people from the Islamic Society, and people from my congregation. And the idea was we meet together every other week. Grant paid for the food. And we meet together, just get to know each other. I remember the first time that we met, and a number of those folks who are in the project are here um, we were at a restaurant, and one of the Islamic women came up to introduce herself, and I saw her in the hijab, and I had an adrenaline. Even though rationally I'd been studying other religions, I was a rational person, but I just felt this kind of, like, hi, just kind of this mm-hmm. reluctance. But week after week, you know, we, we get together, we start to know each other, we, and then we got to a point of trust, we started asking each other all kinds of questions. It really became a, a strong community. And towards the end of that, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, And he talks about bias and racism. And talks about how it's really, a lot of it is about the bank of visual images we have with associated emotion. And I thought about how, as you've said, all this media stuff. If I see a woman in hijab or a Muslim, it's often got kind of a threatening soundtrack. It's got kind of an ominous tone narrating it. And if that's all I see, my rational mind has a hard time counteracting that. Reservoir. But by the end of that project, um, I, I really felt I had forgotten about that. And after it, I was going on a plane to New York. Some women got on with hijabs. And my reaction was like, oh, gee, I, I would like to meet them. And I thought, whoa, my body chemistry's changed. I didn't get that adrenaline rush because it became visually familiar. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you travel the country, where do you see those kind of interactions between Muslims and people of other faith? Um, That really have lasting power and and, uh, deepen, and and how can our community take that direction?
0: Well, it's interesting. I I was getting on a plane a number of years ago, and uh, I was in my favorite part of the plane in first class, and um, I was convinced that that's what I was born into the world for, to ride in first class, and this tall guy gets on in a blue cassock, okay? Turns out that he is a bishop, okay, but raised in Long Island, and I'm from Brooklyn, but he's tall, blue cassock, beard down to here, long hair, and an incredible leather case, so he's clearly a bishop doing well. <laughs> in the conversation, he starts talking to me, and he says to me, in all honesty, he said, you know, when I see these really orthodox, ascetic Jews, and they have their phylacteries, He said, just uncomfortable. He said, and I have to admit, you know, when I see women in a hijab sometimes and men with a beard and a little cap, and I finally said to him, did you see the way people in economy were looking at you? You know? (laughs) He he was raised in New York. He's within his own community now that he's a bishop all the time. Okay? Where I see it is, I see the negative side at times, you know. Um, um, I mean... Uh, my wife and I live in different parts of the country and so depending on where you are you can see that um, but where I do see it is people for example uh, in, um, develop a little book club and, and they're not into big numbers so if it's only 10 of them or 5 of them they get together regularly sometimes that mushrooms, sometimes it doesn't but there's a change um, parishes start getting involved uh, Catholics were very slow to come to it. I used to be invited, uh, after 9-11, or even after the Iranian Revolution, I'd be invited by Protestants to preach during the main service. Now, a Catholic response would be, yeah, so what? I mean, you know, it's not like the mass. I mean, maybe that's it, because whenever they invite me, when I finally got Catholics, it was always, how about in the basement of the church on a Tuesday night? You know, to, you know. All right, now I begin to see more of, you know, a cross-fertilization. And yet I can also say, I was, uh, I was in a parish recently where it was clear as progressive as the parish was and the pastor was progressive, they were afraid to touch, even have a lecture on Islam because they knew that a number of the older members of the community, and it's fair to say older because almost all the members of the community were older, um, that you know they would see red even to even have that program. So, you know, I see it uh, particularly uh, in situations where people work together in community. And that's what I say to people. Work as fellow citizens. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.